Welcome, everyone. Uh, tonight, I'd like to speak about the strength in gathering. The strength in gathering. <clears throat> and uh, as we go through the evening and we're going to take refuge, uh, I think refuge is not so much a commitment as uh, as a as a um, so it reminds me of a sort of being on a a desert and uh, asking somebody where the water is and they point you toward, towards an oasis. You thank the person, you take refuge in the person in their honesty. Hopefully they're not steering you away. And you also take refuge in the fact that there's water that you can drink from and that the whole of that is a kind of driving force for your uh, dedication to direction and purpose, intention. And, of course, the soothing quality of the water once you obtain it. <clears throat> and uh, oftentimes the median is missed for the message of awakening. The medium I'd like to speak about tonight. <clears throat> On other occasions I've spoken about uh, integrity and precepts. Certainly taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma. Uh, but tonight, uh, I'd like to focus on the gathering. And Sangha means gathering in Pali. And I'd like to talk uh, quite extensively about this particular aspect of the triple gem. Triple gem is an important... Uh, the, the Buddha did not differentiate between one aspect of the triple gem and another. He just said, here are three gems. He didn't say that one was a semi-precious jewel and the other two were precious. He talked about all of them being equally as important. And uh, because I think in the West, um, in the East, you see that. You see that because it's been well integrated for centuries. But in the West, I think the Buddha and the Dharma uh, transfer pretty well from East to West because the Buddha's message and the Dharma uh, is very much about uh, self-reliance <clears throat> and uh, using one's, uh, being a light unto oneself. And uh, the message is one that I think is strengthened through the enculturation of the West, of, their, of our fierce achievement uh, in independence uh, but I think the third of those gems, the Sangha, doesn't fit well, doesn't translate well, doesn't go well, doesn't abide, abode well with our, the way we hold ourselves. I mean, uh, we don't want to be relying on anyone, especially this area of the country, I might say, uh, where I read where there are more people seeking couples to be a couple, but fewer but a greater percentage of people actually coupling up, if it were just one of, if it were just that you were seeking it and weren't, were happy with that, that would be one thing, but it, the, both of those are true. And the, the um, unwillingness to put forth the signs that you are uh, needing that or that you'd like that. Uh, it's interesting, really, the fix we put ourselves in uh, through the idea of self-reliance. Uh, but uh, so Sangha that comes up against that fierce independence. Never mind that the 
Dharma is about fierce intradependence or interdependence, we hold on to the independence. And uh, it doesn't work well. There has to be a way in which we invite relationship, that we are dependent upon relationship when we get involved in the Dharma, that we look and use relationship in the mechanics and purpose of what it has meant and not just as a kind of isolated and remote recluse uh, away from everything. So um, I think I just I think I would like to look at Sangha in a more inviting way than how we mostly do it. We think it's an auxiliary component and don't really have a deep understanding of it. In fact, I was at a teacher's meeting, uh, a Vipassana teacher's meeting a few years ago, maybe three or so years ago, and uh, they had two presentations. One of the presentations was uh, from Joseph Goldstein, who was talking about the evolution of people who were on intensive retreat and how their minds evolved through intensive retreating. Fair enough. No mention of Sangha. And then Ajahn Suchito, who is a very reputable uh, monk in the Ajahn Chah tradition uh, uh, and an abbot in and of himself, spoke about how the practice evolved on, in the monastic tradition with Sangha being a coupling part of that. And you could hear a lifestyle approach of how interaction played forth in the monastic approach that didn't play forth in the uh, in the intensive retreat. But what wasn't, uh, there was no spokesperson for the lay practitioner and how the mind evolves in lay practice. And certainly nothing was said about the sangha in lay practice either. So in this last retreat, or this last um, teacher's meeting that happened in July, I intentionally wanted to be a spokesperson for that latter component because I think that as teachers we haven't thought about community and the evolution that occurs within community and how Sangha plays a, a, a important and vital component within that evolution. Now, uh, even amongst you all, some of you welcome coming and interacting. Others shun it, avoid it, try to come one minute before the sitting begins (laughs) and leave one minute after. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, they're naturally uh, people who are meditators are introverted by a majority, not all of you, but many of you, and that it isn't an easy component of our life to settle back and exchange uh, interactions in a, especially a large group in which we know few people. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't have a significant role to play. And in that unwillingness to go with your unease, your disease, uh, which is your shyness, then we may never find that component we may never come to how we can feed upon that. In the same way that just doing intensive retreats 
builds forth a certain side of us. There's no question. But misses a whole rounding out that is essential for that to be a complete story. In fact, it's just one chapter of a book, Intensive Retreating. Uh, so I really encourage us to uh, focus in on this particular aspect of our lives, our spiritual lives. This, this isn't a gathering. It's not, I mean, we, there's different ways that we can look at this thing. And like all aspects of Buddhism, our understanding of Sangha evolves according to our depth and focus and understanding of ourselves. And for some of us, uh, Sangha remains a very superficial component. It's like a social gathering. It's nice. Uh, but we're really not drawn into it. And if we are, it's more for the social connection uh, that's here and meeting with nice people. And which is fair enough. I, it's hard to find a group this size that has basically the level of integration and integrity uh, in the general public. And so it's just nice to be around. One of the aspects is just nice to be around nice people. It's, it's very affirming and very uplifting. And so Sangha certainly serves that point, but that's, very, that's a very superficial understanding of what Sangha is. <clears throat> There's also a shared intentionality that we bring here, hopefully, that we're not just coming for to, to hear a sermon. Uh, I don't really want it to be a congregation like that. I wouldn't do that. I want us to be a working unit. And I see the Sangha as holding the, the parameters of a working unit together. We're working this thing together. Uh, and uh, in that way, uh, the support that that provides us uh, and encouragement that that provides us is, uh, is essential. Because in, when you have that kind of intentionality, the dark side of our character, of our spirit, of our soul, will arise. And you will be f- snuffed out like a candle in a Seattle windstorm. Uh, if you don't have, if we don't have the support needed for the, the sense of how to work with this and how to work with each other in relationship to this particular aspect of our lives. The dark side will arise. I promise you that. And uh, it can be such a, a, a fallback of safety to have others around us who also know that aspect of themselves and be able to hold us all together in support and in a non-judgmental support as we examine, because that's what's necessary, not the begrudged, judgmental side that we love to offer our own traits and qualities, but that willingness to question together because you look across the room and you look across a small group that's formed and that person whose eyes are also soft like yours and vulnerable like yours is telling their story of their own vulnerability and their own reactivity like we are. And suddenly the commonality of the shared heart 
and the willingness to explore, given almost synergistically through everybody's dedication to that purpose, arises in us. It takes, it, it allows the best of us to rise up. Whereas if we're in isolation and in a reservation of ourselves, and that particular aspect rises up, it can throw us into the hell and spin us down into despair and into uh, um, unfathomable disarray. So that's a very important quality to understand. The other thing to understand is that this awakening is possible through the use of the tools that the Buddha provided. That this is not some abstract thing we're speaking about up here. In fact, the Buddha was asked by someone in one of the discourses, he says, um, a person asked him, are, are there uh, lay disciples that you have? Do you have any lay disciples that have awakened? And the Buddha says, not just a few, many, many lay disciples. Many. Hear that. Hear that. Our time here is precious together. How will we use it? Are we casual visitors? Or is there a dedication to intention? You see, much of the problems that we live with have been engendered through other people, other people's ideas, projections. When we were young enough, we took them in. We were ill-formed and became formed through the messages and imprints that other left, other people left upon us. And as we mature and as we grow into our dedication to self-exploration, those sides arise once more. Now, because they were engendered through other people's voices, often the most, the best way to offset the judgment that was induced parentally or however they came about, is to see in another person's eyes that same trait, but non-judgmentally. So that we can offer them the opposite response we received when we were young. And each of us hold the capacity within our relationships to begin to turn this whole thing down and around. You begin to see uh, if any of you are familiar with Jean-Paul Sartre and his existential philosophy, he wrote a book called uh, Enfer les autres, Hell is Other People. And that's essentially what is the truth about how we stay within our own predicament from other people, uh, projection and judgment, which is almost continuous. So we have a group of people here who are willing to turn that around. That doesn't mean that everyone is 100% free of judgment. None of us are. But we're turning it around. And we can use the eyes of others as standards for that journeying into the safety of the heart rather than the judgment of the mind. If you haven't felt that, then you aren't using Sangha. 
And in that way we can challenge the greed response, the negativity, the self-negativity that we all uh, perpetuate, that self-delusion quality of believing ourselves to be who we are and what we are, the image, reinforcing the image, which in the moment of another person's glance, it's completely formed. Because in that moment of glance is a whole story that comes flooding over us in chapter and verse as we pick up the particular attitude or disposition that we might have been in with a whole array of background dominoes that have led to this intense self-dislike that most of us follow, which is a characteristic of the West, which is one of the reasons we seek isolation so that we can get away from the continual damnation of other people's eyes. You see? So how are we going to turn that around? And can we use the very means that crippled us to heal us? That's the question of the Sangha. That's the question. And it's an outward display of coming together, which is the inward intentionality of interconnecting. How are we going to do that? It's not just what's happening inside of me, and that's what's happening inside of me interconnectedly, but we're not going to involve ourselves in relationship or in engaged social behavior. How can that be? How can it not transpire as an outward manifestation as we gain more and more momentum of understanding inwardly. So sometimes my heart mourns for some of us who continue to seek the isolated way through this because I know that that's being stimulated by our pain, not by our wisdom. And it provides a safety. It provides a relaxation. If you haven't felt that, you haven't used the Sangha. Where there is a group of people here who really, I mean, you could, don't try it, but you could leave your billfold on the table back there. And I can almost promise you that it would be there. (laughs) It just depends on who wanders in that door. But for anyone who has spent any time meditating, it would be there on your return. In fact, as a monk, it was just amazing to me. There was no sense of ever trying the need to hide or or, uh, any valuable whatsoever. I had a little Buddha about this big that was made out of ivory. Somebody gave it to me. I'm not supporting killing elephants. Somebody gave it to me. And... uh, It was a very intricate and carved ivory statue of the Buddha. I mean, ivory, I don't know what those kinds of things are worth, but it was probably worth it. And everybody saw it, everybody liked it, and it was there as long as I wanted it. At one point, I gave it away, but it was never a threat to be stolen. And uh, you get get so that you... um, you appreciate that level of safety. I was just at IMS and one of the staff members up there, uh, just off one of the bathrooms, 
has a room and they have their whole coin collection out on their desk and they have like really valuable coins out on the desk and and he doesn't close his door and he leaves around he said I said well why don't you take these things home because you really I mean if you have a new meditator who doesn't he says you know they're probably safer here than they are at home even if they're in a safe at home <laughs> so well there you go And you see that fun of bantering, uh, which I love. When I was a monk in Asia, a group of uh, two or three Westerners for a year when I was there had gathered. We knew, had known each other at IMS uh, prior to the year of coming to Asia. We would meet every third or fourth night. Like the, uh, if you ever read the Vinaya, the monks were did, they would meet regularly, little groups. And they would just have this banter back and forth and they would question each other and, you know, in a very friendly, jovial way, um, just, but, but in somewhat, um, with an intentionality of looking at what's true. Uh, very rare forms of dialoguing in this day and age that can be encouraged in our small groups, in our interest groups, in our KM groups. It doesn't all have to be so seriously, poignantly dharma. It can be just uh, like the Zen picture of a, of, of a huge mountain in a waterfall and three people in the meadow uh, having, you know, you can just see, you can feel the joy of them being together in the hand gestures. <clears throat> just the joy of being together in safety, in commonality, in communion. That in itself makes coming together worthwhile. And then the friendship is based upon kindness. Suddenly you fall ill and you see someone at your doorstep from the Sangha that really cares, not just how are you, that kind of perfunctory way we greet each other, not really caring what the answer is. We might as well... It could be, I'm terrible. Oh, I'm glad. I'm, you don't even know what the person said. <laughs> and, the, and the extension of that out so that it becomes an engaged activity, not just as an enclosed sense of just us, but it's always inclusive. New people come, welcome. We don't form cliques. We don't form little, we don't separate ourselves off. And I certainly hope we don't do that, that we look for the new person to invite them into our dialoguing, into whatever interaction we have, and the sign is welcome, we say, through our eyes. And we then extend that outward so that we engage with the whole of life. And that's why this sim social engagement work is so important, because it takes us out of ourselves. It takes us away from just thinking about my own problems and my own difficulties or the intensity of the homework we might have or it, it gives us another perspective. You know, if you want another perspective sometime, leave this country and go to a third world country. You'll see another perspective and you'll come back relishing what we have here, not taking it for granted. And then your, your heart will be alight on fire with those in this country who are less fortunate. And that comes through that 
willingness to, you know, you, where you start appreciating what your life, regardless of your health level or your level of affluence, is just a sense of appreciation that stems forth from the quality of heart that arises in community and communion. And another component of the Sangha I think is so important is this, um, the, the descent, what I call the descent of the wise into our midst. I don't know about you, but I always like hanging out with the wisest person I know. And when I was young in this thing, I tried to do that uh, because I felt like it might, you know, like rub off. Uh, but I just, but wisdom always attracted me, always attracted me. And uh, sometimes when we're in despair in ourselves, uh, where we don't feel like we're up to the task of whatever we're seeing, or we just feel into kind of a despair of our ability to do it. One of the beauties of Sangha in terms of the history of the lineage is that you can call forth the lineage, 2,500 years of it. You know, it, uh, we're all in that lineage. If this is your main form of spiritual practice, you are in that lineage. And you can call forth that visualization of 2,500 years of wisdom, the lineage of wisdom moving right through you, right through you, just through your efforts, just through your intentionality, your good-heartedness. And it's a hard to get too despairing when you are, you could, and I don't mean to be too, too woo-woo-y about this thing, but you can actually feel that momentum in your own self. I, um, I used to, I didn't buy into that too much when I was I was more into these fierce self-reliance mode when I was young in this. But once I took the Dharma seed, whew, you feel it. Tonight when we take the refuges, those refuges have been taken every day of every year for 2,500 years. I guarantee you, probably many, many more times than once. They say all the time in Asia. And you join the voices, you join the choir of those voices. And they're not, those words mean something when you invite that intentionality in your heart. <clears throat> We're never alone in this. We're never alone in this. You can feel the caring. Just have a moment in which you are in need and let that need be known by others and people will respond. Often the people who you didn't know would respond. respond. They come right forth. They come out of nowhere. And you can see how important the value of the Sangha was with the Buddha because the Buddha, along with murder, breaking or fracturing the Sangha is an equal an equally um, uh, uh, a 
crime, fracturing a song, is an equal crime to murder. So that's how, that's how valuable he held the gathering. It's interesting, you know, uh, when I was in my youth, I was uh, in the Christian church. And I used to hear uh, the Christ's words, when two or more are gathered in my name. And I kept thinking, well, why not one? Why does it have to be two or more? I mean, I like the one. <laughs> why did I have to share the... Uh, but when you see, uh, in my name is the key to that. Well, the, that's the intentionality. Not in my name being I'm a Christian, but in my intentionality for interconnection. My intentionality of what to grow dharmically, to, to give forth my life to the dharma in my name. Then you understand that when two or more are gathered together, then you can begin to feel the humility of being with others. Not the arrogance, but the humility and you can also feel the heart come. And you can also feel the non-separation with two. Which you can't feel with one. And so you begin to see, okay, two or more. He's talking about Sangha. He's talking about Sangha here. Similar to the Buddha quote, where he said, uh, find a friend to go with who is steady careful and mature. Together you can overcome all hardships with mindfulness and joy. Find a friend. Find a friend. And we, you can get a sense of um, the pain. What we're, tr- what we're doing in Buddhism is moving beyond the pain of isolation. That's where we're. That's the starting place. Is the pain of isolation, the pain of separation, of thinking of ourselves as being here and everything else in the world as being outside. That's the starting place, and the willingness to come through that, through that, and to put an end to. We don't want to become. I mean, the self-reliance, the, that fierce self-reliance that we have here has, has value because we're not trying to be codependent in the worst sense of that word. Uh, we're not trying to be dependent upon, but that has nothing to do with interconnectedness. That's not, there's no codependency in interconnectedness. But there isn't any isolation in it either. It's holding the world in a completely different dimension of heart. Where things are together. They don't have to be brought together. And when the heart sees pain, it responds to pain. And that's how we know that things are together. Because compassion arises on its own. Not through our cultivation. So the prayer of the Sangha, the prayer of someone who knows the Sangha, 
is to leave no one out of our heart. To leave no one out of our heart. And therefore we are trying to heal, not hurt. We are trying to unify, not divide. We are trying to love and not fear. And that uh, contraction that we feel when we are have our heart unguarded and we feel tight and tense and we feel ourselves cut off, which happens all the time in interaction. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Because it's there that our old history is coming out. It is there that we have been indelibly imprinted with our projection, with our worry, with our self-isolation. And you can feel it, we can feel it in the heart, and you can, we can use each other and all the frustration and irritation that arises in being with any group, including a group of two, to our advantage if we know how to use it. Not towards more cynicism and bitterness. To our advantage. How is that? Because of radical accountability. Because we begin to realize it's never about the other person. Let me learn from this. I know it's coming from me. I know it's coming from the way I've always held myself in relationship to anyone. And how can I ever know that unless I start rubbing up against someone? It's not all beauty and light. In fact, very little of that in the beginning can be seen. And that's what discourages us and sends us back into our cave. I'm going back on retreat. That's too. Why? Because it hurt too much to be and stay in the gathering. Oh, stay out here. Just know how to use it. Know how to use it. Know how to perceive the pain and how to use the pain. That's what we've been talking about. And you begin to question, what view am I holding now? When I'm all wrapped within myself, when I'm self-imploding, what view am I holding now? You see, the view of... Me being cut off and isolated, or the, let me stand, let me take a stand on this in the midst of the gathering. Let me take a stand on this. Let me feel the emotion that's here rather than to react and move from it. Let me heal this now. Let the dominoes stop falling. Let me just pull one out. Let me feel this now. That's the encouragement that we give each other as reminders. It's not easy. People think, oh, you know, love and light. That's what I'm going to, love and light. Well, you find heaven in hell. You don't separate them anymore. Then you found the real heaven. When you look for heaven outside of hell, that's just... In authentic heaven. You know, I, I, I really appreciate some of the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a friend uh, who died uh, but was a sponsor for years and years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he would tell me, we would drive down to Cloud Mountain and back, and he would tell me about some of the people who were sponsoring. And they would be uh, sober for 
a decade, and then all of a sudden they would just relapse and be in the gutter. And he would just go pick them up. Just go pick them up, set them up. Okay, now we're day one again. You were on day whatever, 10 years times 365. Now we're on day one. Start again. No judgment, nothing. Just pull them up, you're going to begin again. Now I thought, man, that is Sangha. That is Sangha. Just to have that absolute conviction that it's possible and I don't care how many times you falter, we will pick, we will stand together on this and my standing together hopefully at some point will give you the conviction that's in me that we can do this together. Sometimes, you see, if we were all in that level of pain, we would know the value of having Sangha around. But we don't feel we're in that kind of pain. We are in that kind of pain. But we blame it so easily that sends us into a kind of a remoteness in ourselves, not into inner connection. But if we knew that pain was dependent upon somebody else being there for us, we'd hook up together as one big group very quickly here. And we begin to see, you know, when I, I was uh, when I was young, I played tennis, and I got to the point where I was in my age group the best tennis player in my little city, not in, in big city, small city. So I didn't really want to play people who were not as good as me. I was always looking to play for somebody better so I could learn. And then it dawned on me that that was such an incredibly selfish way that nobody could grow from me. I had to grow from everybody else, you see. And I, and just like that, you begin to understand that we can share wisdom here together. That Sangha is also a place where we can share wisdom, where there are mentors and, and people who have gone through training now for a decade or longer and who have the wisdom and capacity to help others. And that's what we're doing now. We're turning this around so that we have people available mentors at the end of each evening like tonight and people who you can uh, form groups around and use it as a steadying point not just my being I'm not interested in you being dependent upon my teaching or this thing forming around me but people who are steady in themselves are sufficient and moving that forth so the whole thing gains momentum you see and so we're playing tennis with perhaps somebody not as wise. And it feels, you know, what, what, you, what we get from that, believe it or not, is mudita, the joy of seeing somebody else improve, of, turn, of growing. And it's, wow. I mean, that's really what a Dharma teacher gets from being a Dharma teacher, is the joy of seeing other people grow. It's tremendously inspiring. It gives me hope in the face of 70 degree temperature in Washington, D.C. in January. This gives me hope. That doesn't. So there are people waking up here. You know, at the end of this retreat I just taught at IMS, um, Narayan, dear friend, she said... Uh, she said so genuinely, it stayed with me. She said, uh, until I die, this last thing she said at the end of the retreat, we were all, she said, uh, out to everybody, she said, 
I give you my heart until I die. I give you my heart until I die. Now see, that's Sangha. It starts a common dialogue. Establishes a common dialogue for us all, doesn't it? And it challenges our complacency. So easily we can fall into the rest in complacency. Rest with our habits. But if we're dialoguing about that, if we come together and we, the homework for that day should shake that complacency, shake that habit. So you aren't feeling very comfortable in that dialogue. Your feeling of uncomfortableness means that this thing is working. Many of us take it as, oh, I need to seek a different... No, this is working. We should feel that stretch in ourselves. We are moving outside of our complacency, our indulgence. And the song is beautiful in stirring things up like that in, in the meeting. Never forgetting that what we're offering at all times is our integrity. I, I, I will never say that I can't fall, pray, as many, many, many teachers and students do, to their uh, passions and desires. But I can tell you that I hold my integrity above all else. Because I realize what safety does for those I am with. And I offer you that. But I don't ever take the assumption, the personal assumption, that I can never fall. To do that is just absolute arrogance and it assures my fall. Humility is the only way through integrity. Humility. So you see, it shows us where we are in life and how we hold each other. It shows us the quality of our heart and how we hold each other. It shows where we're out of balance because sometimes we're out of balance in trying to separate ourselves out. Sometimes we're out of balance in trying to serve the poor or serve, do too much helping help overextend ourselves in that way. Either way, it's out of balance when we don't take ourselves into consideration. This is balance. We are equal to those we serve. And we look at what we need in order to perpetuate our service. And if we extend ourselves too far, we falter. And service holds that leaning. We never give ourselves away beyond our capacity to understand who it is that we're giving away. And the willingness is to spend time. If we haven't felt that, if we haven't felt that, the willingness to spend time with one another, we haven't used Sangha. We given every time we do so, we give over to something higher, something truly sacred. Be 
these aren't words that I'm just saying tonight because they sound good. These are deeply meaningful areas of our life that we can use if we'll come together, if we meet. If not, the next hundred years of teachers' meetings will have a lot to say about the retreatant and a lot to say about the monastic, but little to say about what we're doing here. And I want to change that. And I hope you do as well. Thank you all. Can we just sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.